When you're trained as a counselor, and I'm very happy that Liberty is associated with some very good counselors. I have a little bit of training. But when you're trained as a counselor, uh, Arlene, I don't know if they still use the same language, but we were taught that when somebody comes to present what they're struggling with, you need to label that as the presenting problem. Those of you who are physicians or in medical practice, it's the same way, isn't it? People say, I have an ache and a pain. And you say, okay, tell me about it, but then you don't assume that's the real problem. So there's the presenting problem, and very possibly and probably the real problem. Uh, an, an example came to mind as I was thinking about this. I remember years ago, a, a couple, actually it was the husband who made an appointment for some marriage counseling. Now that's unusual in itself, frankly, that the husband takes the initiative. But when we finally sat down and we did the, you know, how are you doing sort of a thing and really got to the, to the presenting problem, here was the presenting problem. His wife was not giving him enough allowance each week. Seriously. And so he was going to use me to get her to give him more allowance. Now again, I am not the greatest counselor in the world, but I stopped to think, I think there's a deeper problem than how much allowance he's getting every week. So we began to work on the real problem, although we did use, use this presenting problem as a basis of conversation. Now I, I start off that way because I think that's exactly what you have here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. What was the presenting problem? Well, the presenting problem, if you look at verse 1, is meat or food that was offered to idols. Now, up until this point, um, there's been a series of problems that were raised. Actually, the Corinthians uh, wrote to Paul, I think, with kind of a laundry list of issues that they had. And before he ever got to them, Paul had a whole uh, another list of things he wanted to talk about, which he did in the early part of the book. But if you'll, if you'll look back, for example, at chapter 7, those of you following in your Bibles, you see where he begins saying, Now concerning matters about, about which you wrote. So now he's finally talking about things they want to talk about. Because there were other issues he needed to talk about first. He see, says the same thing in verse 25 of chapter 7. Now concerning the betrothed. So they wanted some rules about marriage. They wanted some rules about getting engaged. The same thing as the way verse chapter 8 starts. Now concerning food offered to idols. And that was a real issue. I was doing some reading about this, and there are two ways that this food offered to idols showed up. One was that you could actually go into one of the temples in Corinth and have a meal. It's a good meal. 
ordinary food, probably better food than you'd get in the, in the uh, food stalls along the way. And uh, so people felt free to go in and sit down and eat at the temple dining rooms. But another way in which this showed up, and this goes over into chapter 10, actually, was that at the temple area, there were meat markets. Because typically people would bring off, uh, offerings to the temple. What was sacrificed would be burned up. Other meat was set aside to be sold in the marketplace. And typically it would be better meat, better quality meat. And so Christians were kind of wrestling with just what should I do in these, in these situations? And that's what was before them. That was the presenting problem. What was the real problem? Well, Paul immediately jumps to that in the second part of verse 1. You wonder, why does he make this jump? Now, concerning food offered to idols, and then he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, friends, that's the real issue this morning. You and I are going to face... Again and again and again, various situations for which there are no rules. Tell me exactly what I should do in this situation, or in that situation, or when this happens, or when that happens. And there are many, many times you can't simply open up the Bible and say, here's a verse that tells you to do this or do that. But there is one rule. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And as I was reflecting on this, it seems to be one more way in which the Corinthians were still immature, were stuck in their spiritual journey. They were all excited because I guess they'd been believers for several years now, and so they thought they knew a lot of stuff. Maybe they'd been to theology class. And I'm not against theology, by the way. But maybe they'd done all sorts of studies. Who knows where they were? That's where Paul refers, you'll notice, to knowledge... If anyone imagines, I'm reading verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, and notice in the text they put knowledge in quotation marks, because we're not against knowledge. But if it's just stuff that fills up your head, that's not the biblical idea of knowledge. Will we agree? So The fact that you know some stuff doesn't mean you really know. To know is to know in your heart, to know at the core of your being. And these people were clearly using their knowledge, or what they thought was knowledge, to hurt others. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
It's not the real thing. But in fact, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the preeminence of love is what we're really talking about. And if this sounds familiar, it ought to, because it's going to take us even into next week and the whole discussion of how we use our spiritual gifts. And the climax of it is the great love chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Um, That's not just sort of a poem that appears out of nowhere. It's really in the context of how we treat one another within the church, within the body of Christ. And it's getting started here in how we look at those who are weaker in the faith. This is also, also maybe kind of go back and think about where we are here in our study of 1 Corinthians. Paul has not tried to unfold a systematic study the way you would do in the book of Romans. And yet, I think there are some sort of markers along the way that I've observed that might help. I I kind of ticked these off a couple of weeks ago, and I'll do it again. Because some of you ought to listen to this if you're saying, I'm stuck. I'm sort of like these folks. You know, I've... I'm just sort of shaky. I'm not really growing. Okay, just remember for a minute what we've studied so far. And I want you to sort of walk with me. It's almost like a checklist. First of all, and this goes back to chapter 1, Paul said, you understand the starting place is the cross of Jesus. This is the gospel. The core message of the gospel is Christ crucified. And I'll say again, if you're a, if you're a beginner, and I, I just, I'd love, to, I'd love to know every one of your stories, but I don't. But I suspect some of you here are just getting started. You're not quite sure you'd call yourself a believer yet. And if that's the case, there's only one door through which you can walk. And that's the cross. You have, got to, you have got to encounter Jesus who died on the cross. That's the doorway. And Paul said that's what, we, that's, that's what chapter 1 was all about. Not only is the gospel the doorway, the gospel is the pathway. If we're going to walk to follow Jesus, it's going to be sticking with the gospel. In fact, we come to communion every single Sunday, don't we? To remind ourselves, back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross. But then the second thing that Paul talked about, if you can check that box, none of us can perfectly, but was a recognition that what, how the gospel works, how the cross changes your life, is by a working of the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is a God thing. This is not something you sort of stumble into. The Holy Spirit is at work. And I didn't get this at first. You know, I thought about Jesus, and we should. That's where it starts. But if you're going to be going to grow in your faith, you need to recognize that this is also a working of the Holy Spirit. This mysterious moving of God into the heart. That's what chapter 2 actually gets to. I'll just read a couple of verses, and you can notice if you're following with an open Bible. Chapter 2. Verse 4 and 5. 
and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. That's this knowledge stuff. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So have you figured that part out? Yes, Jesus is central in his cross, but it's also supernatural in the end. It's a working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But then he adds a new thought. Not only is the Holy Spirit working in your heart, but one of the other things the Spirit has done is to pull us all together into a community. Again, I will say in my own sort of journey, I didn't figure that out for a while. The church was just some place you showed up to on Sunday morning. No, friends, the community is that the church is a community formed by the Holy Spirit. And he asked it as a question in chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, this is not you personally. This is you, Liberty Church. It's true for other churches as well, of course. But, but friends, we are a community drawn together. You can't take your commitment to the church lightly. Because this is part of what God is doing, for we are the dwelling place of God. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. Now add to that what Duane was telling us last week. Not only are we as a community the dwelling place of God, your body is the dwelling place of God. Right? Chapter 6. Powerful message that Duane brought to us last week. Verse 19. Do you not know... See, there's the word know again. You guys... Say you know so much stuff, do you know this, that your body, your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we need to start with the gospel. We need to recognize This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to acknowledge that the Spirit is not only working us personally, but has brought us together as a community. And now, those of us who think we know so much, do you know this? The principal guideline of the Christian life is love. That's where we are now. And I want to ask you again, do you know this? And I don't mean do you know it in your head. I'm sure we all acknowledge it. But deep down in the core of your being, the way you treat others, the way you treat others within the body of Christ, do you know that love is what must drive us? There's a famous saying in the church by St. Augustine. 
Maybe you've heard it before. Love God and do as you please. You heard that? Think about it for a minute. Let me ask you if you agree with it. Love God and do as you please. Should we vote on whether that's uh, truth or not? I mean, how can you vote against Augustine? If you know anything about him, he was sort of the dominant church father, writing about, what, 400 A.D. or so. Now, I checked it out on the web, and I found out there's more to the statement than that, obviously. Here's the full statement. Love God and do as you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Obviously, that goes with it. I mean, it's, it's a theoretical statement. None of us loves God perfectly. If we did, we would be able to do anything we wanted and wouldn't have to give it another thought. Because what would so drive and compel us is the love of God, our love for God, knowing that he loves us. It doesn't work out that way practically. We know that. Nevertheless, in terms of a, of a driving principle, I really think this is what Paul wants us to hear when he says, okay, before we talk about food offered to idols, I want you to know this. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with that. Think about it. Let it go deep into your soul. Love, you know, in the Bible is not an empty fluff word. You've probably heard this before, but typically it's explained in terms of the three Greek words for love. Let me just take a minute and repeat that for you. Greeks had, I'm sure, other words as well, but the, the words you hear so often are eros, philos, and agape. You had this explained before? Eros, and if you hear the word erotic, um, that, that's where it comes from. Although, eros is not necessarily a bad word. It just means love as a passion. When you're in love, that's eros. All the love songs in the world are written about eros, what I'm feeling at the moment. Obviously, that can lead you into some destructive things, but it's really simply a love of, of passion, which can be fine. But that's not what the Bible uses when it speaks of love. Then there's the word philos. A philosopher loves philosophy. Philos, we're, we're, we're living in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I know all sorts of jokes are made about that, but that's, that's where it comes from. Philos means really a love in the sense of, of affection. I like you. 
You're a nice person, and I enjoy spending time with you. You're a really good friend. That's, again, perfectly good, but that's philos. Not the word used for love in the Bible, or at least in these portions of the Bible. The word that is typically used in the Bible, actually it's kind of a boring word. The Greeks didn't use it very often, because it wasn't a word of feelings at all. It's called agape, and it's a word of action. To love means I do something for you. I act in your best interest. I do the right thing. Whether I like you or not, see, that's not the issue. A lot of you wonder, how could Jesus command us to love our enemies? I don't like the guy. So somehow I have to work up a liking for him, and then I can love him? No. Whether you like him or not, you love him in the agape sense. That is, you're committed to his best interest, to his first uh, first desires. In fact, in the 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll look at next week, the great love chapter, some of you who kind of grew up in church may remember that the old translation, the King James Version, instead of using the word love, used the word charity. And it's very easy to dismiss it. Well, that's the old-fashioned word for love. No, they chose the word charity. Because they said love in the biblical sense means you're doing something. It's an action word. And that's really what Paul has for right here. So this is the primary issue. This is the, this is the deep issue. Do we know what it means to love and to love our brothers and to love people who are weaker in the faith than we are. And if that's the case, then we can read the rest of the chapter. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing it, but this is the, this is the presenting problem. This is the food offered to idols. And let's come back to chapter 8. And just follow the logic that Paul has as he discusses this particular situation. Starting with verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, this is the intellectual truth, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Right? Do we agree on that? Idols don't really, they're pieces of wood. They're whatever they fabricate, but there's no actual idols. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in quotations you notice, because they're not real, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, for, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are, are all things, and through whom we exist. All right, that's the doctrine. An idol doesn't exist. It only exists in people's minds. We know that, don't we? 
but not everybody does. That's the point that he's going on to make. Look, look as I continue in the text. Have you considered the fact that even though you know this stuff, not everybody does? However, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Isn't that the point? You can say in your head, you know what? I'm hungry. And I know that in the temple dining room, they serve a good meal. If you want to get the best hamburger in town, that's where you go. Oh, I know they offer it to idols first, but, but we know. See, isn't this the point? We know an idol is nothing. So I'm going to eat in the dining room. And Paul's simply saying, okay... But what about this poor guy who's just come to faith out of the idolatry of the Corinthian church? What's, what is he going to be thinking as you go up into the temple to the dining room? Doesn't it matter to you? Are you so arrogant that you don't stop and ask yourself, how does this affect this guy who's weaker in the faith? But you say, I have a right to do this. I know I'm not sinning. Is that all the issue is? Or isn't it more important to consider the people in our community? This is, is, this is, the, this is the question, isn't he, that, that he's asking. And if we stopped and just thought about it for a minute, we could come up with a dozen examples, I'm sure, of how things we know we could do without sinning. But in fact, we do it disregarding the needs of those who are weaker, and in fact, therefore, we are sinning. That's what he goes on to say. Keep reading, if you will. If anyone, verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... He will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this is this head knowledge, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Bottom line, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Love must prevail over what we think we can do. That's really what it comes down to. 
just ask you to stop and consider this, particularly those of you who feel like you've advanced in the Christian walk, that you know more than other people. What you need to know at the root of it all is that love needs to drive this. If you, if you want to see how Paul deals with this kind of thing, go on and read chapter 9. We're not going to have the time to do that today. I do want to keep going into chapter 10, though, because this is where Paul actually brings this to a, to a conclusion. Because over at the end of chapter 10 is the uh, question of the other use of this food offered to idols. Uh, starting with verse 23, Paul talks about how this impacts unbelievers. And it's the same kind of principle. Read it when you have a chance. I'm not going to go into the, into the careful reading of it. But basically, if, a, if your unbelieving friend, he says, invites you to a barbecue, and you want to go, go ahead and go. And don't, don't, how else can I put it? Don't make an ass of yourself by asking all sorts of unnecessary questions. If he's serving you a meal, just eat it. Give thanks because God has created all things. However, if the guy comes up to you and says, oh, by the way, I want, uh, you know where this hamburger came from? These ribs? I got them at the temple. <laughs> I know you Christians don't like the temple, but boy, they got good meat there. Ooh, Paul says, now you're in a different situation. And you've got to find some gracious way to back away and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And in the end, you're doing it for his sake, not for yours. Because you shouldn't let some other people rule your life. This is where it gets complicated and just way more than we could talk about this morning. But there are some Christians who, frankly, are Pharisees. And your life and my life is not to be run by what Pharisees think of us. I mean, you're, you'd be spending all of your life trying to live based on somebody else's opinion. So friends, this is not an easy question. And, and we, if we sat down and, and talked about it, and, and you know, you would say, well, wait a minute, you know, when I was at work, I had this situation come up. When I was uh, in, in our home group, we had this discussion. When I was in my family, we had that discussion. And you have to almost sort of work through every case. Because, because you and I are not called to be living our lives based on somebody else's opinion of us. We are free in Christ. Jesus has set you free from the law. He set you free from rules and regulations of other people. But, but do you who have that knowledge flaunt it in a way that actually harms another person? harms a brother, then you've got to say, no, you know what? Food is not that important. Whatever else it is, alcohol, whatever the particular issues, it's not that important. What's more important is that I love my brother, that I love my sister, and I know they're weak and I want to help them and I want to support them. Now here's what was striking to me, and I want to close with this. In chapter 10, as Paul is sort of wrapping up this discussion of how we treat one another, 
You know what becomes the measure, the sort of the, the line he draws, the place where we actually make affirmation of our commitment to love God more than anything else, to be careful about our brothers and sisters? He uses the communion. And that's how I want to use the communion this morning. Those of you, again, if you're following with me in your Bibles, look at chapter 10, verse 14. Or the rest of you listen carefully. Therefore, my beloved, and he's talking to people he loves, right? This is not trying to hammer and just put rules on you. But this is so serious. If you and I are going to grow spiritually, if we're going to grow as a church, we've got to get a hold of this. Flee from idolatry. And in fact, isn't the idol of the culture in which we live, if you're saying, what is the chief idol? Isn't it freedom? I want what I want when I want it. And I don't care really how it affects anybody else. It's none of their business. Isn't that the idol? And if you as a believer say, I demand my rights, I don't really care how other people are affected. Tough, that's their problem. Are you not, in fact, becoming an idolater? So Paul calls us away from that. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. I know you're intelligent. I know you can think about this. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then this comment, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But here's what I do imply. That what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Whether it's ancient idolatry or whether it's modern idolatry. Behind it is the spiritual force of evil. And God help us if we unknowingly or knowingly participate in that evil. I do not want you to be participants with demons. But it all is represented in the communion meal. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord. And the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so in just a few minutes, I want to invite you to this meal. And in the light of what scripture says, I want you to say by your coming to the communion... 
I renounce the devil and all his works. By his grace and help, I will not be a participant in the evil of this world. But instead, my loyalty is to God, the Father, and to his Son, Jesus Christ. And I affirm that by taking this meal. That's really what you have an opportunity to do this morning. Not just to say, oh, you know what, he's right. I need to be a more loving person. But I want you to to stand up so that all the rest of us can see you. And I want you to take that piece of bread that speaks of the body of Christ and dip it in the wine which speaks of the shed blood of Christ and eat it and thereby testify to your loyalty to Jesus Christ, to your desire to love him above all else, to desire to love God and your neighbor and your brothers and sisters. What a privilege we have to come now to this sacred meal, not just as a sort of a weekly ceremony that's nice, but as an affirmation of our heartfelt loyalty to love God above all else. Love God and do as you please. May God give us that kind of love. Let's pray.